what are some of the things that people living around us here spend their time on, give their time to? Some are into sports, especially in this sport mad town, can hardly go out without seeing someone going for a run, or maybe people are into watching a football match. Some devote their time to their gardens, especially if you go up some of the roads around here, people put a lot of time into their gardens. Some are keen walkers, go to Bradgate Park even at 7 o'clock in the morning and the dog walkers are out already. Some love to socialise, whether at the students' union or the pub or at the bridge club. Some go to church, they enjoy religion, they're interested in Jesus. Now, is Jesus on that level? I've just given you a load of interests people might have. Things they might spend their time on and, well, some happen to be into Jesus. They like their religion. Is he an interest some people have and others don't? Is it bigoted and fanatical to say people must be interested in Jesus, take notice of him? Or should we just leave people to their own interests and choices? Some are into running, some are into Jesus, just whatever you're into. Well, that is answered by Luke chapter 20, verses 9 to 19. Let's turn to it now. There's page numbers on the back of the purple sheet and some notes to show you where we're going with this. Luke chapter 20, verses 9 to 19. It answers that question, is Jesus just an interest some people have? Or must we insist that people take notice of him? It's also a part of the Bible that tells us what God is like. Uh, I wonder if you've got a heading there in your Bible. I've got one here that says the parable of the tenants. That's a really unhelpful heading. It's not original to the Bible. It's been put in by people later. Because the story Jesus told, this is a, a parable, a story with a meaning. Its main character is not the tenants, it's the owner of the vineyard representing God. It's really all about him. It should really be called the parable of the noble vineyard owner. It's all about his nobility. And we need to hear what it says about God, because there are people who are angry about God. Oh, he's harsh, he's unreasonable, he's overly demanding. And then there are other people who are apathetic about God. Well, if there is a God, he's distant and he leaves us alone and he doesn't get involved. And I'm sure if he's there, he's easy going and he's happy with me. And the story by Jesus shows that both of those are wrong, drastically, dangerously wrong. So, let's go through the story now, and we're going to hear it on three levels. The story, what it meant for the people Jesus was speaking to at that turning point in history, and what it means for you and me now. And it starts with a remarkably patient vineyard owner in verses 9 to 12. A man owned some land, he planted a grapevine in it, and he made it into a vineyard. But he lived elsewhere, and so he rented it out to farmers to look after it. They would make money, and he'd get some of the harvest. They are called tenants. I'm going to use that word quite a lot, so I hope you know what a tenant is. A tenant rents a property lives in a property they don't own. Well, harvest time came and he sent his servant to get some harvest from the tenant farmers. But when he arrived, the farmers beat him up and sent him away with nothing. Now, what would you do if you were that owner of the vineyard? Well, an obvious response would be, 
call the police. Have them thrown out and get new tenants. Take some legal proceedings, because if you let people mess you about like that, well, the next lot of people will mess you about like that. Now, of course, there weren't police back then, but the owner did have the right to get the authorities to send in a group of heavily armed, trained men to throw them out and to assert his rights, to take vengeance because he had been insulted. That's what happened, no police, but there, but there were authorities that would do that. And the owner not only could do it, but in that honour-based society it was thought he should do it. Because you should not let insults to honour go undealt with. But he doesn't. He doesn't. He sends another servant just a servant on his own, to this group of thugs. And they beat him too, and send him away empty. And as if to emphasise the owner hasn't stood up for his honour, we're told in verse 11, they treat him shamefully. Because the master has acted rather shamefully. Now will he send in the heavy mob to sort them out. Now he's got to stand up for his honour, hasn't he? No, he sends another servant to ask again for some of the harvest and they just beat him up too. Well, in fact, the wording in verse 13, sorry, wrong verse, in verse 12, say they take it a step further, they wound him, they cause him grievous bodily harm and they throw him out. It's a word with violence. Now, here's a businessman who, unlike most businessmen, is willing to appear weak and be dishonoured to give these scoundrels repeated chances to do the right thing. Surely Jesus has got a bit carried away with his storytelling. Surely Jesus has exaggerated to send a first servant and then a second servant and then a third servant. Hasn't Jesus made the story rather unrealistic? Who would go that far? God would. And God did. And this is what Jesus is saying. God did. Jesus was speaking here to leaders of the Jewish nation. God had given them the land and so many good gifts along with it. And in the Old Testament, Israel is pictured as a vineyard. But they'd got on and done their own thing. They pushed God aside as if he had no rights over them. He couldn't expect anything from them. No, just leave us to live our own life. And again and again, across centuries of Old Testament history, God had sent prophet after prophet after prophet, warning them and inviting them back to him. Some they'd thrown into prison. One they even threw down a well. Some they killed. Jesus' story isn't unrealistic. In fact, it doesn't go as far as God did with Israel in his patience. Who would go that far? God did, but God still does today. It's an amazing verse towards the end of the Bible, 2 Peter chapter 3, that says, God is not slow to keep his promise that Jesus will return. He looks like he's being slow. He looks like, why is he just 
waiting. Now he's not slow. The verse says he is patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Or another verse in 2 Corinthians 5 says, God appeals to you. He pleads with you. It even makes God sound rather weak and as if he's begging you. Be reconciled to him. Jesus doesn't push the story too far. God goes even further. People who for years and years have been living as if God has no right to expect anything from them, God gives them opportunity and more opportunity and more opportunity to turn to him. Maybe you have heard God's message. Maybe you've heard God's warning and invitation many, many, many times and brushed it aside. Is God being patient with you? Is he still waiting for you to turn to him? Well, we move on in the story and we find next an astonishing decision in verse 13. Verse 13 is the centre point of this story, even though we get to it rather quickly. An astonishing decision. Three servants have come back, beaten up and empty-handed. The owner in verse 13 asks, what shall I do? Well, what do you think he should do? Surely now he must send in the authorities. These people have not just insulted him, they are clearly, well, they've hurt others and they're a danger to yet others. Not once, not twice, but three times they've beaten someone up. So surely now he's got to take drastic action. Well, he does take a drastic action, but not the one you'd expect. Verse 13, this is what I'll do. I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. Send your son? Are you crazy? Without a bodyguard to protect him? To people who've proved vicious? Perhaps they'll respect him? What are you talking about? They have shown you repeated disrespect. What on earth makes you think they'll respect your son? Now, surely, again, Jesus' story is unrealistic. Who in their right mind would do this? God would. God has. Sent his son to, ki- to the people who killed the prophets he'd sent. Sent him without a bodyguard of angels. Sent him as one lone man looking so weak and vulnerable. The, vo- the vineyard owner surely looks a bit weak and foolish to us. Can't he see the bad way it's going to end? Whatever makes him so concerned for these bad people that he wants to give them another chance, even at risk to his honour and risk to his son? Well, Jesus says that's God. He's not foolish. He's not weak. But he's willing to risk looking it. He's willing to risk his son. What for? For people who've pushed him aside and said, you've got no rights over us, it's my life, I'll live it my way. Why would God do it for such people? Well, I have no other answer than one word. Love. And that's the only explanation out of astonishing love. What will you do about that love? 
Push it aside when you've got out of this building and just get on with your life. Carry on your own way. Throw it back in God's face. Spurn it. Or seriously seek this God of astonishing love. Here's another astonishing story for you. I'm told this is true. Hussein bin Talal was king of Jordan in the 1980s. And in the early 1980s, the security police told him 75 of his most senior army officers were meeting in a nearby army building plotting a revolution, going to overthrow him and install a military dictator. The security officers wanted to storm the building and take these people. But the king refused and he said, no, bring a small helicopter and fly me to the building. And so the king was landed on the roof of the building and he went in alone. And he went to the room where the revolutionaries were meeting, burst in and calmly said to them, I've been told what you are plotting. If you carry out the plot, there will be civil war. Thousands of people will be killed. The the country will break apart. But there is no need for this, because here I am. If you just kill me, you can take power without bloodshed, at least without a lot of bloodshed. After a moment's stunned silence, the rebels, amazed stunned by his nobility, came forward and pledged loyalty to him. And the revolution never happened. Sounds a bit unbelievable to me, but I'm told it's perfectly true. And that is the sort of thing hoped for in verse 13. I'll send my son, whom I love, perhaps they will respect him. This is what ought to happen. They should be stunned by such nobility. And throw aside their rebellion and recognise the rightful ruler. That's what ought to happen. That's what's hoped for. Will it happen? Let's see. We move on to a foolish response in verse 14 and 15. The farmers see the sun coming. Maybe they keep him waiting at the gate while they have a talk. And their talk goes like this. What shall we do? This is the sun. He's, he's the only sun. He'll inherit this vineyard if he lives, but if we kill him, we'll get it. Come on, let's get rid of him, then we get to keep the vineyard. Now, does that sound sensible to you? Kill the vineyard's owner and you'll get to keep the vineyard. Sounds mad. But having said that, in Judaism at that time, there was a thing a bit like squatter's rights. If you'd been in a property a certain length of time, you could claim the right to that property. Maybe they're hoping for something like that. But it doesn't sound sensible. Because surely if they kill the vineyard owner's son, they're just going to bring down the anger of this vineyard owner on them. Surely he's going to come then and sort them out. But they seem to think this owner, he's so distant, he's so weak. Look how weak he's been. He'll just be weak again. He's uninvolved, he's not that bothered. He's a pushover. Their attitude seems mad to us. How can they think they'll get away with it? But Jesus was describing exactly the people he was speaking to. Back in chapter 19, those of you who were here, when was it? Last week, may remember that back in chapter 19, we heard that Jesus had taken over the temple for a while. He'd taken over it. 
And he'd shown that they had made the temple all about them, as if it, as if it belonged to them. All about what suits them, instead of serving God. They were like those tenant farmers. With the temple, God's temple, they were there to care for it, but instead they made it all about them. And now, those same people are thinking, if only we could get rid of this Jesus. He's getting some influence. He's taking some people with him. But if we could just get rid of him, it will just be back to normal. It will be back to our way. Us in control, having things our way. And we think, how could they think they'd get away with it? Well, the answer's obvious, because they think Jesus is just another man with big claims, throwing his weight around. But if we get rid of him, well, he's just a man. They don't see he's come with God's authority. He is the son of the God who owns all of this. They're just thinking in human terms. The tenants in this story, I'm sure, seem mad to us. How can they think they'll get away with it? But was Jesus describing you? Was Jesus describing you? It's a good thing to be a tenant in God's world. What a great gift God's given us, that we've got a place in his world serving him. But do you regard yourself not like a tenant in God's world, but acting as if you are the owner? It's your life. You're in charge around here. When I was a student, I organised a meeting to consider the controversial issue of abortion. But it never went ahead. Well, at least it didn't get started because a great big group of people turned up with megaphones and instead of discussing the issue, they just spent the time shouting through megaphones and I well remember it going through my head. They chanted, our bodies, our lives, our right to decide. Again and again, our bodies, our lives, our right to decide and closed down the meeting. Well, let's ignore that there's another body involved in abortion Their phrase is exactly the attitude of humans since Genesis 3. Our bodies, our lives, our right to decide. We're not God's tenants, no. I'm me and I'll do my own thing. We even, like the religious leaders in the temple, can can turn church into all about us. We call it our church and we say what we want to happen as if it belongs to us. If you hear that Jesus says no, no, you are a tenant in God's world, answerable to him. Do you push him aside? Ah, it's just another religious claim. It's just another religion trying to restrict our freedoms. Push it aside and carry on doing your own thing. Do you see you're like the tenant farmers here? You're like the religious leaders then. You're just thinking in human terms. You're just thinking of Jesus as just another religious man. Don't you see? He's God's son with his authority. You're acting as if God is just distant, uninvolved, a pushover, weak. Is he? Well, let's move on in the story and see. The last part of the story, we have a severe but good ending. Verses 15 to 16, a severe but good ending. The owner of the vineyard has looked weak and foolish, but he is not. 
He was just being strangely loving to bad people. But they've pushed it too far. And at last he comes and takes action. And he doesn't pussyfoot around and he doesn't debate terms and he doesn't sit down and have a discussion with them. Jesus tells us he kills the tenants and he gives the vineyard to others. It sounds severe to us and it is. But it is good. It is justice being done. And this hits home to the people listening to Jesus if you see the end of verse 16. When the people heard this, they said, may this never be. That's actually a really weak translation. They say, no way, you cannot be serious. Never in a million years. It's that sort of phrase. Because they know what Jesus means. Israel has been God's vineyard. That's a picture from the Old Testament. God's people in God's place with God's presence. And he's been so patient with them. But Jesus is saying there is a limit to that patience. If they don't accept his son Jesus, he's going to take it all away from them. They realise that's what he's saying and they say, verse 16, no way, never. But with remarkable timing, 40 years later, 40, very significant in the Bible, they were given 40 years to change their mind, but they didn't. And 40 years later, 70 AD, the Romans marched into Rome and they destroyed it and killed the people and brought an end to Old Testament Judaism. Did you know Old Testament Judaism doesn't exist any longer? Yeah, there's a religion called Judaism, but it's nothing like Old Testament Judaism. It doesn't have a temple, it doesn't have a priest, and it doesn't have sacrifices, and they are the heart of Old Testament Judaism. There's no such religion as Old Testament Judaism, because they didn't recognise the Messiah, and God forcibly brought it to an end. Well, you say, that's interesting. We've learnt a bit of history. We've learnt what happened in 70 AD. Good job, that's all a long time ago and nothing to do with us. No. No, stop there. It's in the Bible here and it happened in real history to demonstrate that you must take God's warning seriously because he's coming again. The God who at this moment looks weak, distant and foolish. Well, you don't expect to hear that at church, do you? I didn't say he is weak, distant and foolish, but he does look it. Look at the chaos in the world around us. Look at the unbelief. He looks weak, distant and foolish, but he isn't. He's actually giving you time and opportunity to turn to him. But his patience has a limit. One day, he, the owner, will come back to deal with his tenants who've refused to admit they're his tenants, but instead have wanted to be the owners. And it will be no less real, and it will be no less terrifying than what happened in 70 AD in Jerusalem. Well, that brings Jesus' story to an end, but in verses 17 to 18... Jesus says, and this is what he is like. He brings out the meaning. Verse 17 to 18, it's all about him. Jesus was telling the story to people who had asked him, what was his authority for taking over the temple? And the story has shown his authority. And so in verse 17, he looks directly at the people. Significant phrase. 
Do you see it in verse 17? He looked directly at the people who'd been questioning him. And now he looks directly at you. And he says, have you understood the meaning? I came to be rejected. It wasn't just God taking a risk, it was all in the plan. A plan of love. A plan to save people. A plan to pay for sin. A plan to turn people back to God. It wasn't some weak God who took a risk and the risk failed. It was all in the plan. A plan that looks so weak. As as one man on his own, looking so vulnerable, died on a cross, looking like a miserable failure. But he wasn't a failure. No, he's one. He's one because, verse 17 tells us, he's become the foundation stone. He's become the foundation stone of God's new vineyard, his new kingdom, his worldwide church. That Jesus was rejected and looked a total failure, but then he rose from the dead and today millions of people are worshipping him around the world. That is evidence he isn't just another man with big claims. It isn't just another religion wanting to restrict your freedom. He's God's son with God's authority. He's the foundation on which you can build your life. Or what? Verse 18. Verse 17, he's the foundation on which you can build your life. Or what? Verse 18. Or if you don't, he'll become the stone that falls on you and crushes you. Jesus here in these verses is telling you the story he's just told isn't just a story, it's about him. He's the one who puts it into practice. He has come because of God's loving patience. He has come so you may have God's loving patience. But he's also saying if you spurn it, if you reject it, the severe ending of the story is your ending. So will you throw yourself on God's loving patience or will you carry on your way and have Jesus one day throw himself on you in severe anger?